I think about price, I think about speed, and I think about certainty. If you're not the best on price, if you can offer speed and certainty, that can sometimes sway a process in your direction. Hey, I just need 15 days to close this, or I need 30, and somebody else might still need 60 or 90 days. The bird in the hand can sometimes be worth more, even if the the nominal value is less. Welcome to Inorganic, where we talk about all things inorganic and indirect growth for hyperscale SaaS companies. I'm your host, Christian Hasselt, and on this show, I open source everything I've learned over my 24-year career of building companies. Our guests are exclusively those who have been through the same journey and know how to cheat gravity and accelerate growth. Welcome to the episode of Inorganic, where we explore growth strategy for enterprise SaaS companies. My name is Christian Hassold. I'm your host, and I'm joined with a friend and colleague, Juan Mejia from Bright Tower. Juan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. We pretty much pulled all this together in the last 20 minutes. <laughs> We're a little behind schedule. It's a, it goes to the, what's the Jay-Z song? You can sort of get whatever you want in within an hour in, in New York City or maybe even 15 minutes. This is, we uh, pulled this together in about that much time. Well done. So th- thanks for spending time with me today. Juan, why don't you start by introducing yourself? So not to go too deep into it, but I used to work in IT and software One of my clients years ago was actually Goldman Sachs. I was at Goldman when they went public. I learned a lot, even though I was actually on the IT side. I learned a lot about the IPO process, learned about M&A, and it really got me interested in potentially pursuing a path in finance uh, and specifically in investment banking. So I ended up going to uh, business school and out of business school, call it 20 years now almost, doing investment banking. So, so far, so good in terms of the career switch. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so the reason why I thought it'd be fun today to talk to you was to really unpack what is the role of a banker that runs primarily on the sell side. And so the goals of today's conversation, what I want everyone to be able to take away is what is it that you actually do? How do you build a relationship with someone that does your, your kind of work? how to engage in processes that you run in a really effective way. And then probably if we have some time, talk a little bit, get a little bit of market perspective. We're in a really interesting market right now. So how would you, in simple terms, describe what does a sell-side banker do? I think a good banker will engage with a client and we're, we're strategic advisors, right? So we should be giving advice. And sometimes that advice may be to not sell or not raise capital, And so we're in a long-term business where you have to establish relationship, establish credibility. And so sometimes that advice can be not to do something. When we do a process, when we do get engaged to sell a company, we really manage every aspect of the business from the very beginning to the end. And so that includes, for example, creating marketing materials, creating an information memorandum that includes every detail about the business that you're selling financials, business overview, what does the overall market look like, the operations, the sales team, what's the go-to-market. So you're really making sure that you're compiling all the relevant information that a buyer will need to know in order to make a decision, is it a company that they want to buy? It's the marketing information. The next stage of what we would do is contacting potential buyers or investors. 
And that can be strategic buyers. It can be private equity or financial buyers. In order to do that, of course, we have to have relationships with those buyers. And so if you are in the software world, you need to be able to reach Oracle and Salesforce and SAP and Adobe. If you're in the marketing services world, you need to be able to reach WPP and Accenture, et cetera. And so making sure you have those relationships that you can actually get responses from those potential buyers when you reach out. And then it's really managing every aspect of the transaction to the very end, negotiating, helping guide buyers in terms of valuation, everything that goes from front to end. And frankly, sometimes I feel like we are psychologists because especially for a founder owned business, this is their baby, right? They're selling something that they've created and it's sometimes very difficult to part with that. And so you're helping them understand the pros and cons. Great packup. I think, you know, you've got two roles that you can play. One is assisting in a selling process, but also you could be a partner in raising capital from investor partners. But in the end, it's it's really a packaging business and orchestrating a process and playing a little bit of psychologist slash psychiatrist for your client who's who's grappling with decisions of either giving up equity or, or giving up a business that they've owned for a long time. So I think the way I wanted to unpack this a little bit, it was to give my own perspective and why I thought this would be an interesting conversation. When I think back to after Channel Advisor acquired my last company in 2017, I spent a little time figuring out what I wanted to do. And eventually David Spitz, the CEO said, can you help me with M&A? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's, I love that. I want to do more of that. And he handed kind of a pile of PowerPoint documents in front of me. And it was like, I was like, wait a minute, this is my friend's company. Like there's all these, what we call SIMs, confidential information memorandums that were essentially pitching all these different businesses. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. They're like people who help other companies sell their business. And when I started in that role, I looked at it sort of like, a, hey, you know, kind of wait for their phone call. But it quickly transitioned like, no, 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 I should actually be proactively reaching out to them, letting them know what I'm looking for. And it really kind of opened my eyes to like, this is a much more of a relationship to be built. It's much like a sales funnel. This is the top of the funnel. And how do you how do you sort that out? So where I want to start was really how someone in a corp dev role in enterprise SaaS should really be partnering with you proactively in the sourcing process, even when there's not an active process in place. Maybe kind of take the role of advice giver to someone who's newer to this this kind of a role. So it is important, as you said, to be proactive and reaching out to bankers and sometimes to founders if you're on the buy side looking for opportunities, right? Not just waiting for those inbounds. For the banker, I think it's important for us to maintain a regular cadence with a potential client. You know, it can be quarterly, let's say, where you're giving the client an update. Perhaps it's just on the overall M&A market, right? What's happening at a very macro level with M&A. Perhaps it's getting a little bit deeper and talking about some specific opportunities. Even if I'm not selling a business, I want to make sure that a client or a potential client knows what else is actually in the market that's actionable. And then the other piece is actually raising opportunities that maybe are not actively in market, but thinking strategically for that potential client about, hey, what about extending your business into this category? Or what about adding on this type of capability? 
perhaps the next step in that is just an in introduction, right? Introducing one CEO to another CEO just to have a 30 minute, 45 minute open dialogue. No expectations on either end, but oftentimes those types of early dialogues can help if that potential target ends up running a process or if they just realize, hey, there's a really good fit here and maybe that target doesn't end up running a process. Yeah. Not great yeah. for me, yeah. but it happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There's and a so, little bit of community service that goes on in the work that you're doing. Maybe a lot of community service, maybe more than we, we can fully appreciate. Yeah, so you're really in this role where you're providing a significant amount of community service in between the actual running of the process. So fully appreciate that. And I think one of the things that I really value in building a relationship with sell side, and you have to do it with more than one, you have to do it with, you know, you have to think a little bit about where the relationships you want to build, how much information that you want to share as an acquirer, then naturally you have your own proprietary opportunities you want to pursue and you want to be careful about what you disclose. And conversely, you in your role, you don't want to disclose maybe an opportunity you're working on that you don't want someone to swoop out from under you and take off of your hands proactively. So there's a little bit of sort of trading information as a currency, but in the end, it's like that is really necessary to understand what is happening around you in the market as the corporate development professional, as the person who's really in charge of inorganic, and also to get a frame for what is just market activity like. Is it tight? Is there a lot going on? Right now, it's, it's super tight. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So that I, I think was an important point to talk about. But what I want to do now is sort of transition into the actual process. Once you actually are in contact with a banker and they're saying, uh, here's uh, an opportunity, it's super interesting, you know the form of the email, exciting company, hockey stick growth rate, great management team, AI, ML, data models, data pools, like all of the right keywords are in there. Now you're getting into a process, you have that initial conversation with the banker. What's the expectation that you have of a potential strategic in evaluating an opportunity. And what I mean by that question is, at what point do you want them to be scratching just enough to evaluate if it's right versus, look, don't get deep involved, don't sign NDAs and start asking for data just because you're curious. How do you really ex want them to think about, you know, qualifying in or out so they use their time well and your time is used well? So I think a little bit of this probably goes to the fact that a lot of buyers are repeat buyers. And so if you end up as a buyer with this reputation of, oh, they sign NDAs, they submit first round bids on every process, but then there's always an excuse or they find some flaw, they've learned a ton of information, they've used a lot of the banker's time, they've used a lot of the, the target company's time, you end up being less likely to get a call when it's a, hey, we're going to run a process and there's only 10 parties that the owner will allow us to talk to, right? Yeah. They want it to be a very tight process, not this broad auction where yeah. you reach out to 100 parties. Yeah. So you want to be aware of that because it will have repercussions down the road. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It's like you want to be, be sure to build that bridge. And so for you as a corp dev professional, in my experience, it's really understanding what are the things that your company is looking for? What do you want to accomplish inorganically? And doing a real quick job of matching that up with the opportunity that's in front of you. The challenge in that sometimes is the marketing material 
doesn't always make it super clear what exactly is there. Like the, the first SIM, the confidential information memorandum you get sometime is so broad in its marketing that you really are like, well, but who are the customers? Is this a SaaS business? Is this a services business? So if you're in a position where you, you really are trying to legitimately qualify in or out, like what's the right way to leverage a relationship with you to say, hey, look, I, I just want to figure out whether this is right for me. What, what are your expectations? First of all, that's where having a more frequent dialogue helps because that will mean the banker just has a better sense for, all right, this should be a fit or could be a fit, or this really isn't a fit, and maybe we don't raise it with that potential buyer, or at least when we contact that potential buyer, we say, look, for example, we know you're interested in SaaS. It's 50% SaaS, it's 50% managed service, right? Setting that expectation. But as a corp dev person interacting with the banker, you should also be asking those very pointed direct questions to let them know what are the priorities, what are just things that don't work. If retailers as a potential end customer is not where your business is focused, you don't want to look at an opportunity that has 90% of the customers are retailers. Are retail, yeah. Right? And I'm using a real world example. Yeah, yeah, these are real world examples. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's helpful. So maybe to go a little bit deeper, like can you kind of walk through in your view sort of what are the phases of a sale process? Like, what are the key steps? Sure. And I probably covered a little bit of this earlier, but when we get engaged, we're typically helping create the marketing materials. That can be a teaser. It can be, depending on the banker, one page, five page company overview with information that you're okay as the target company having be in the public domain right? You're not putting a lot of proprietary information in there because a potential buyer is going to get that pre-signing an NDA. We've already talked about creating the information memorandum or in these, these days, it's more of a SIP rather than a SIM, right? So confidential information presentation. Back when I first started banking, it was memorandums. It was literally paragraph after paragraph describing a company. Over the years, we've just found that with limited time and, and so many opportunities, it's easier to digest a presentation. Pictures, charts, graphs, happy people, hockey stick, yes. revenue growth. Yes, which is in that graph. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so marketing materials is a big piece of it. That includes a virtual data room that we'll typically set up, right? So we're getting a ton of information from the client. We're setting up a virtual data room so that as part of the process, eventually post-NDA, a buyer will be able to get access to that. We talked about contacting buyers. That's a big piece of, of the role. There will be some bankers that might just email out five opportunities in one email to 300 private equity firms. I'm personally of the ilk that I prefer to call. Maybe I email just a very high level overview, but hey, we should really talk about this opportunity live because it deserves to have more color commentary than just being a one or two page teaser that came along with five other opportunities. So contacting buyers and then the full negotiation of the the purchase agreement of LOIs and exclusivity, if that's something that's part of a process. And so it really is front to end. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we're doing this alongside good counsel. So you always want to make sure you have a good lawyer on hand to complement what we do, because they're really making sure that you're covered, of course, from a legal perspective. 
Right. And you're talking about sort of the early phase of the process is essentially marketing and outreach. And all of that's in service of getting a set of buyers at the table. Maybe the other kind of steps I was thinking of is sort of IOI, LOI. What are those steps? So we don't typically run just a cookie cutter process. Every situation is unique. Mm. But in general, I would say most auctions. So if it's a broad process where you're going to contact 50, 100, 200 potential buyers, you run what's called a two-phase auction. Phase one is sending the buyer a teaser, getting them under a NDA, and then sending them the, the SIP, right? The information presentation. With that information, no access to management yet, you're then asking them to submit a bid. And a bid may be a range of values. It may indicate how you're going to finance that acquisition, uh, what your diligence is that you're going to require in the next phase, right? There's some key components to that. We'll typically take a subset of that. So I almost think of the M&A process as a funnel. So you contact, let's say, 300 parties. And of those parties, maybe 50 will actually sign an NDA. And of the 50 that signed the NDA, let's say 15 actually submitted a first round bid or an initial indication of interest. Of those 15, we'll then take a subset into the second phase of the process. And the second phase is where you actually now get to meet management, have a ideally in person, could be a half day, it could be a full day meeting where you're taking what you learned in the information memorandum and you're really as a buyer able to ask that next level of questions and hear the story directly, right? It just, it's completely different to hear a story from a management team than to read it on paper. Also, as part of that second phase, that's usually when you'll get access to the virtual data room. Right. So in parallel to meeting management, you're also getting access to contracts, to certificates of incorporation, leases, right? Everything around that business that you would need in order to make a firm or definitive type offer. So the end of the second phase is putting in a final bid. Oftentimes that'll be an LOI. It may request exclusivity. Sellers, of course, typically do not want to grant exclusivity because all of a sudden your options are, of course, limited. But depending on the scenario, a buyer may may push for it or you may grant a buyer exclusivity. And then whether it's 15 days, 30, 45 or 60 days, really doing that confirmatory diligence and getting to the final signing and then closing. And I think one of the things is what we're talking about here on Inorganic is the perspective of an enterprise SaaS company doing M&A. What I want to do is just peel back a layer on like what's happening on the other side. I've seen a number of times where we'll see a process run, whether it's banker run or whether it's run by the company without representation. There's sort of a thing of like, oh, this company's got no hope. No one's bidding on this. Let's bid low. We're going to get it. How should a company be thinking about what's on the other side? Who else is at that table that that they don't know about? In your experience over the last dozen so processes you've run, who are the participants been in those processes? What's the number of folks that have ultimately are getting into LOI? Unfortunately, I would say it varies drastically. So I've run processes where there's one really interested party and that's it. It always helps if you are the seller in that situation, if you have an option, meaning you don't have to sell or you don't have to raise capital. 
you're profitable. Everybody's been pushing for profitability the last 12 to 18 months. So even if there's just one party standing, if you have an alternative, you have leverage. So I've seen those types of processes. I've seen processes uh, recently where we have 20 initial indications of interest. We have 100 parties signing the NDA, partly because there's just not that many assets in the market. So anything that comes around, a lot of people just want to take a look because they want to see, hey, could this be additive to what we're doing? It's an interesting point. The market cycles are sort of like if there's less opportunities in market, then you're going to have more demand on any given opportunity because everyone's taking a look. But if you're the corp dev for a SaaS company and you're looking at these opportunities, the thing to be thinking about, and you're to confirm this for me, is you're at the table competing with other strategics and likely PE firms who are looking to add on into their portfolio. It's like it could be fairly competitive is it more the case that that is what's happening versus the latter where we were talking about there's one or two people left at the table? Yeah, I would say more so than not, there are strategics, which could be public companies. There's private equity backed strategics and there's private equity firms. Everybody is interested in looking, even if there is a bit of that kicking the tires sometimes that you see, but in the current market, there's definitely all types of buyers involved. And so to get five or 10 initial indications of interest is, I would say, fairly, fairly common depending on the situation. Yeah, but IOI to LOI, I mean, that an IOI is really non-binding and very broad. And you can just submit an IOI all day, as you said earlier. Right. You have credibility that you could risk by being a consistent, I give you IOIs, but I don't take it any further. But from IOI to like LOI, is it from... 10 to 2? Is it from 10 to 5? Like, what does that roughly look like? If it's a process that has 10 IOIs, maybe you're getting between 3 and 5 yeah. LOIs. Yeah. And again, just every situation is is different, but there's been enough demand in this market that you're usually getting people staying in processes and really wanting to make the acquisition. Leaning in, yeah. yeah. So if I'm a strategic and I'm either private equity or venture backed, it's an interesting dynamic. Ten years ago, a VC would be very unlikely to want to use capital on balance sheet for M&A. In the current climate with the Tigers, the Insights, the SoftBanks of the world, the dynamic has changed. Investors are more willing to put capital from balance sheet into inorganic growth to accelerate the business because uh, it makes sense to do it sometimes. And there's a machine and an engine that really has kind of been established to make it much more successful than inorganic growth uh, may have been some time ago. So the reason why I bring all that up is if you're that strategic and maybe you're doing an equity and a cash deal and sort of dollar for dollar, you may not be the most attractive buyer in terms of offer, but you've you want to have advantage. Like, what are the ways that a strategic can have advantage if ultimately it's not like price? Like, now I'm not saying they're coming in at half, but let's say they're coming in pretty strong, but they're not leading the pack in the actual LOI stage. What are the things that they could be doing as a strategic to gain advantage with your client, with the seller? So there's probably a couple things. One is when I think about an M&A process and getting the best outcome for my client, I think about price. I think about speed and I think about certainty. Those are the three things. So if you're not the best on price, if you can offer offer speed and certainty, that can sometimes sway a process in your direction. Hey, 
I just need 15 days to close this, or I need 30, and somebody else might still need 60 or 90 days, the bird in the hand can sometimes be worth more, even if the the nominal value is less. The other piece that can come into play is, so price is one point of the economics, but as you just said, maybe there's stock, and maybe the sellers actually find that stock very, very valuable. I sold a business a few years ago where the founders, three founders were offered all cash and an opportunity if they really were interested to take stock. By the end of the process, after they had learned about the buyer, they actually wanted even more stock. So they weren't about, hey, I just want to maximize my cash proceeds now. They loved the combined story so much, they wanted to get more stock in that buyer. Then, of course, there's other economic points that could come into play. So, for example, a working capital target, right? If you have a more seller-friendly working capital target, or you're going to do an escrow for rep and warranty insurance. If you have an escrow for reps and warranties, and somebody else is willing to do rep and warranty insurance and actually pay for the rep and warranty insurance, all of a sudden, there's an economic point, not only in the dollars that are lost up front, but even in the the risk or the time frame of when you're going to get that escrow back in six months, 12 months, 18 months. Yeah. Reps and warranties insurance has become like very common now. It's a pretty common tool, but the, the conversation is all who's going to pay for it. In a lot of cases, it's split, but sometimes if the sellers just got a lot of risk, then the buyer's like, I'm offering this as an option to cover all the risk that's on the table. So there's usually a bit of a negotiation around it. So what you're saying is it can be a lever if you're willing to do that. And depending on how, how you're willing to split it or divide it takes a lot of future potential risk off the table for the seller. They have certainty that the money they have in closing and the money that's in escrow, they're fundamentally going to get back. Yeah. And by the way, the last important economic point, which comes up a lot in smaller businesses is earnouts. So maybe you have the highest nominal or headline price at 500 million, but what if 400 million of that is an earnout and it's got goals that are unachievable or you know very difficult to attain? All of a sudden, maybe a 120 million cash offer looks better than the yeah it could be 500, but maybe it's just the hundred. So we're gonna run on time, and I think there's one thing that I really want to ask, which is. How does one get into your crosshairs? What are the two or three ways that you can create friction that makes you a buyer that's not going to get the next phone call or not going to be in the front of the line for the next opportunity that comes to market? You know, in your in your experience using generalities, because I'm sure they're just generalities. Probably the worst offenders are the ones that will. And I would never say this to them, but they retrade and they retrade when you're very far down the process, maybe you're in exclusivity and all of a sudden the rest of your interested parties all just, you know, went on, they have different priorities and it's very difficult to go back sometimes to prior parties. So retrading is just, that's the worst offense you could possibly have. You know, sometimes I find that people will go around the banker and depending on the situation, sometimes it's actually okay. Usually it's not. In most processes, it's laid out even in the NDA, you will contact the banker and every request, every interaction needs to go through the banker. Where I find sometimes that 
that's not the case. Sometimes it's just an inexperienced buyer. Yeah. It just doesn't realize the rules of engagement. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly why we're talking about yeah. it right here. Because right. in my instinct as a founder would be, well, great that it's running a process, but I want to have advantage in this deal. So I'm going to go find that founder and say, hey, let's have coffee. I'd love to talk to you. So how do I navigate that? Because I do, in essence, as a, a buyer sort of want to have relationship advantage. What is the right way to build relationship and culture advantage without getting in your crosshairs? Sometimes there are some bankers out there that are just difficult. They want to run the process. They have a very strict way of doing it. And by the way, I'm not talking about public companies because when you're working with public companies, there are totally some very, ballgame. yeah, it's it, a totally it's, different ballgame. Right. But my view is that they're actually, even if I'm on the sell side, there are times where it's appropriate and actually beneficial for my client, whether it's the CEO or the founder to talk to the buyer's founder or CEO. And I don't necessarily need to chaperone those. And so as the buyer, if you can, and I'm going through a situation right now, the buyer's founder and CEO has approached me on multiple occasions and said, Juan, is it okay if I reached out to your client? I would love to have a discussion with him or her about X, Y, or Z. And that's a good sign for me because it shows that that buyer really is interested. They're also checking, making sure that they don't you know, get sideways with the banker or the process. And it also gives me an opportunity to talk to my client to make sure, hey, there should be no negotiating going on, right? If they start talking to you about price or terms, just tell them, look, for that, that's why we engaged a banker. And so I'm not going to talk about that. And any buyer should understand that there are going to be certain thresholds where a seller will just say... Boundaries. Yeah, boundaries. That's why we hired a bank. Yeah. Well, I think in this world, especially when you're, and again, you know, we're, we're very focused on being a strategic buyer in an, a SaaS and enterprise SaaS environment. A lot of times you are very much about building the relationships and having culture be an element of the conversation. You talked ways about that you can sort of build advantage in a deal with the way that you might structure a deal. I think we as SaaS founders, former SaaS founders, think a lot about the relation and cultural advantage and sort of building that relationship. It helps. Right? At the end of the day, the economics are the economics. But if you've got two or three parties to choose from and one just feels like a better home, you know, why not try and, and build that relationship? But your point is, do that. Make sure that it's what your, your sell side banker partner is going to be open to and work within the bounds of the rules so you don't find yourself in the crosshairs. It just makes it harder for you to play further along in the process. Fair summary? Yeah, good summary. And it affects the next process as well, or yeah. it could affect the next process. So I think, you know, in a nutshell, the way I read is a very much a marketing role that we actually both live in. It works, it's sort of two different days. On one hand, your marketing opportunities coming to market, you're positioning to them, you're running a process. And the role of Corp Dev is essentially running a similar funnel, a similar process of evaluating those opportunities and figuring out how to get in or get out using the criteria. And so I, what I hope we accomplished through this conversation was just giving more perspective on what's happening on the other side. What are the things that you don't see in the process 
from banker to banker, as you mentioned, it's all really different. But to just have a perspective on what's happening on the other side, I think is super helpful. So I really appreciate you coming to the pod and and sharing your experience and insights. It was uh, it was super awesome. Absolutely. No, appreciate you uh, inviting me and looking forward to seeing and hearing more of your podcasts in the coming weeks and months. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for joining me and thanks for joining us on Inorganic. We look forward to having you join us. This is as a conclusion of episode one. There will certainly be more and the production will be much better organized on on my part. Uh, look forward to seeing you next time on Inorganic. Thank you for listening to the Inorganic Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes and description for a rundown of today's show and all the important links. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let's continue the conversation on my LinkedIn. I'm Christian Hasseld. Happy scaling. Happy scaling.